Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Today we will have an interview with new UW President Ed Seidel on topics ranging from his goals to reopening the university. We will be science-driven. What is the best way to keep the students, faculty, and staff of the university safe? Wyoming's community colleges are planning for the fall semester. Without federal guidance, each is developing a unique plan for its campus, from the classroom to the dorm. Each community college in the country, every higher education institution in the country should not be having to figure this out on their own. Wyoming's congressional delegation has different ideas from the president regarding COVID-19, and we continue our series on racial tension in Fremont County. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. In a rarity these days, the entire Wyoming congressional delegation disagrees with President Donald Trump on his response to coronavirus, even if they don't dare phrase it that explicitly. Correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington on how our delegation's science-based responses are especially causing headaches for Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Since coronavirus began infecting millions of Americans, Wyoming lawmakers have been critical of President Donald Trump's stance on combating the pandemic. While they never criticize him directly, one of their attempts to tiptoe around the Trump-sized elephant in the room backfired as Fox News host Brett Baer told his audience last week. Breaking tonight, there's something of a political mutiny tonight among House Republicans. One of the top figures is under attack from some inside the GOP conference. Congressional correspondent Chad Pergram tells us about it from Capitol Hill this evening. Good evening, Chad. Good evening, Brett. Well, this exploded today at a meeting of the House Republican Conference, which is chaired by Liz Cheney of Wyoming. There are some conservatives who believe that Cheney has been too deferential toward Dr. Anthony Fauci. Conservatives in Congress are also upset that Cheney has been outspoken in opposing the president's decision to remove some 12,000 U.S. troops from Germany. One of the president's sons then weighed in by comparing Cheney to former GOP presidential nominee and now U.S. Senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, who was the only Republican in Congress to vote for an article of impeachment. Donald Trump Jr.'s tweet reads, We already have one Mitt Romney. We don't need another. We also don't need the endless wars she advocates for. Cheney didn't like that barb from a member of the first family. Donald Trump Jr. is not a member of the House Republican Conference. We uh, have a situation um, uh, in many cases where in our conference we can have a, a healthy exchange of views. Uh, unfortunately, you don't see that as much in the Democratic caucus. President Trump then retweeted a call for her to resign as the third highest ranking Republican in the House. Before his fingers typed, Liz Cheney is only upset because I have been actively getting our great and beautiful country out of the ridiculous and costly endless wars. Cheney says everything's fine though. Uh, everybody is united. We know that we're going to uh, uh, need to be united in order to uh, prevail in uh, November. Like Cheney, Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates also didn't want to discuss this internal GOP dust-up. I think my tweets and public comments speak for themselves, Matt. 
Gates is one of the president's top rhetorical bomb-throwing lieutenants on Capitol Hill. So when pressed, he finally unleashed on Cheney, especially for her stance on foreign policy that she inherited from her father. Uh, you know, I don't believe Liz uh, represents the energy behind the America First movement that's been successful in electing the president. While far-right conservatives have latched on to foreign policy differences to go after Cheney, the dust-up started over her defending the response to coronavirus laid out by Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. But Cheney's not alone in that, at least among Wyoming's federal lawmakers. The state senior senator, Mike Enzi, in effect, told us the president's claim that COVID cases are spiking because of more testing is ludicrous. Testing is key to a lot of this to give people confidence in being able to come back. And when they do, the economy will come back because people have a lot of pent-up spending. <laughs> and as the virus was spreading this spring, back when Congress was shuttered, Wyoming's junior senator, John Barrasso, disagreed with the Trump administration as well. The doctor by training was even crunching his own numbers on the virus, based on numbers coming out of the University of Washington. You know, it's, it's evolving. The Washington model, you know, a, a week or so ago, they had Wyoming predicted deaths at over 200. And I do, do my own math and my own studies based on this. So I had it about 250. Still, even as the president has tried to leave states and localities on the hook for the disheartening records of coronavirus deaths and rapid spread across the U.S., Congresswoman Cheney says she's fully behind Trump. We're uh, united. we got to make sure the president gets reelected. we got to make sure we get the majority back. Cheney admits that being thrust into the crosshairs of the conservative media machine and the president's tweets isn't what she wanted. Still, she says, listen to Dr. Fauci when it comes to coronavirus, and not others, especially the president. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. As we've reported, the COVID-19 pandemic has put stress on our nation's healthcare system. Many medical workers throughout the country are heading into overwhelmed places with high amounts of cases to help out. Sheridan VA Health System nurses are being sent on two-week stints to VA and community facilities. Wyoming Public Radio's Catherine Wheeler brings the story of LPN's Mike Gatewood and Aaron McDaniel, who work at VA satellite clinics in the state, about their time at a nursing home for veterans in Maryland. The facility there is a 400-bed facility, and they were operating pretty much to capacity when we got called to go there, and uh, they were in a rough state when we got there. Almost half of their residents, but half of their staff had COVID or had recovered from COVID and and that at the time was um, just about as many that had been diagnosed here in the whole state of Wyoming. One out of every six people at that facility had passed away from COVID and the staff there saw that. These are people that they've been taking care of for years of so the emotional trauma on the staff, not to mention the fact that half of them got sick and one of them died, so it's rough for them to even want to walk in the door. So they're under stress, the, the residents are under stress, the, the administration is under a lot of stress, and our job was to take care of all of them. We gave the nurses there somebody to talk to, we gave the people who lived there 
all the help they needed so that everybody could kind of collect themselves, get back together, and then, you know, come in and, and go back to work. And kudos to every one of them that was there because they worked hard through some just very debilitating things and didn't quit. They didn't give up. It was pretty smooth even going in, although, you know, I was pretty nervous when I hit the floor. They gave me a, a few hours of training, and then from there you were just on your own, you know. It was it was hitting the floor running to help them. But that's, that's what we did. That's what I was expecting. That's what we were there for. So the floor I was on, either they hadn't got it or they had recovered from it. Um, there was just a shortage of nursing staff. So basically, we're there to assess the patients, take care of their needs, pass their meds, and make sure that their um, their needs are met. And sometimes that can be difficult when you have short staff. So you might be taking care of 20 to 40 patients, and that's the kind of stuff we were doing. I had a lot of fun with it. That's kind of probably a weird word to say when a disaster is going on. But, um, you know, you make the best of the situation. Um, I made friends with a lot of those nurses uh, because we did let them know that we were there for them and um, and the veterans in the nursing home. Um, so you you go in there thinking you know the worst, and then you make the best out of everything. I'll tell you, it was kind of a humbling experience for me because, like I said, I was a soldier. When I got deployed, then you knew that there were people trying to kill you. Here. It's a disease that's trying to kill not just you, but everyone. There is, it's, it's war, it's combat, and that's what we got deployed for. And there are people that don't understand that. Um, so it was humbling for me because these were people that were living and working in that environment and seeing people they've known for years drop like flies and they still kept going. And these are civilians, they're not people that have been trained to deal with this kind of trauma, yet they're doing it. Wear a mask. Just just wear it. Just wear your mask. Put it on when you're around somebody else. It's that simple. In a moment, we continue our series on racial challenges in Fremont County. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. The city of Riverton is proud of its tradition of peacefully protesting against acts of racism. But a new generation of activists is taking the lead, and they have a different idea of what those protests should look like. Wyoming Public Radio's Savannah Marr reports. George Floyd's killing at the hands of Minneapolis police sparked a wave of protests across the country. And the first Wyoming town to join that national movement wasn't Laramie or Cheyenne or even Jackson. It was Riverton. Riverton is a conservative rural town of about 11,000 people, not the kind of place where you'd expect to see a protest. But it's also surrounded by the Wind River Reservation. Leading this demonstration is a young Arapaho person named Micah Lott. I write this for those who feel entitled to judge the outrage of anyone who have endured 
Hello, my name is Micah. My rap pony name is Hisispeye, which means old man's son. Lot is one of a handful of people in Fremont County who has experience organizing protests. They were a water protector at Standing Rock, probably the largest indigenous-led protest movement in history. But Lot traces their roots as an activist right back here to Riverton, Wyoming. Yeah, I think it's kind of difficult to pinpoint when um, you come from a targeted community. I think that there's probably like a lot of pivotal points like in my life that pushed me to the forefront of organizing things. One of those pivotal moments came in 2003, when Lot was only nine years old. A white supremacist group with a history of violence announced that it would move its official headquarters to Riverton. People in Lot's circles were outraged and afraid. The majority of the response had come from indigenous people, like the tribal leaders and people like that. And from tribal youth. I I was shy, (laughs) but I felt really deeply, and I still do today, that this is something I wanted to speak out against. That's Stephanie C. Hare. In 2003, she was a student at Wyoming Indian High School. She and some of her classmates wanted to plan a demonstration to show that Fremont County wouldn't tolerate white supremacy. But there was no roadmap for them to follow. We didn't really see too many protests or peaceful marches or rallies before that. And a lot of people in Fremont County wanted to keep it that way. The idea of a white supremacist group setting up shop in Riverton wasn't popular, but neither was the idea of a bunch of Native kids marching through town in protest. Not everybody, including my principal, I don't think was just all out thrilled. Colleen Whalen was a teacher at Wyoming Indian at the time. She says there was a fear that things would get ugly. There were families, and they came up to me and told me, the adults, that no, our family will not be coming. That walk is dangerous. So there was a lot of pressure to keep this event not just peaceful, but positive. Stephanie Seahair says she and her classmates internalized that. We didn't want to divide people. We want everybody to come together. So we came together and did the whole peaceful protest. You know, we did the walk from Walmart to the city park. And it was a success. Hundreds of people came out to support them. There was no violence and no counter-protesters. Every year since 2003, Wyoming Indian High School has organized a Martin Luther King Day walk in Riverton. The event has become something of a blueprint for activism in Fremont County. Ron Howard leaned on that blueprint in the summer of 2015 when Riverton was grappling with another act of hate. A white City Parks employee had shot two northern Arapaho men in the head while they were asleep at a detox facility. Sonny Goggles survived the shooting but was severely injured. Stallone Trosper died that day. Howard says it felt like a punch in the gut. That something so brazen and so bold could have happened. I was angry and I was confused and I didn't know what to do, but I knew somebody had to do something. Howard wanted to make sure that what happened wasn't swept under the rug. So every July, he organizes a peace march through downtown Riverton. Howard strives to keep the tone of the event positive, despite the violence that prompted it. From the beginning, he says some people haven't been on board with that. A lot of people were so angry that they said, no, we don't want to do that. We need to do something more. But in the name of peace and tolerance, that was about the only thing I could think of. One of those people is Michael Lott. 
They say all this focus on peace and unity lets racist people and systems off the hook. It seems as if it's like band-aids to like the much larger issue because it's like we want results. We don't want this to keep happening. So the protests Lot organizes look a lot different. No justice, no peace. No racist police. No justice, no Since 2003, Lott has watched Riverton's protest tradition take shape. The Martin Luther King Day walk and the annual peace marches have helped shape their identity as an activist. But Lott is tired of being polite. Why do we have to be put in that position where there's this continuance violence put against us, and then we have to be the peaceful ones, and we have to be the polite ones, and we have to be the ones that have uh, nonviolent communication to be able to have these dialogues? And yet, still nothing changes. Lot says Native people in Riverton are only listened to when they're calm and cooperative. And as long as that's the case, they say nothing is going to change. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Savannah Marr. Many places around the world have towns with predominantly white populations living in close proximity or directly on tribal land. Dr. Jeffrey Dennis is an associate professor at McMaster University in Canada, and he wanted to see how small border towns like this talk about race. Wyoming Public Radio's Taylor Stagner talked with Dennis about his new book and the connections he made in Northwest Ontario. Settler colonialism is the idea that Indigenous people are being erased from their own land through generations of genocide, relocation, and contemporary erasure. I asked Professor Dennis about how he conducted his research. Yeah, so I, uh, I ended up moving to Fort Francis, literally lived there for uh, about a year and a half, um, got to know uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people uh, through uh, various community events, volunteer work, uh, did uh, formal interviews with 160 uh, residents, uh, about half white, about half uh, indigenous, including both Anishinaabe and Métis uh, people, many of the white people would immediately say, well, if, if you're looking for racism, this is not the place where you'll find it. We get along with our Indians. That's something that I heard from multiple people. We get along with our Indians. <laughs> what's, what's going on with, it, with a statement like that? I mean, the, the, uh, on some level, as I said, there are these relationships. There are actually friendships and intermarriages. Uh, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that there's also pervasive uh, stereotyping, discrimination. Listening, I was interested in how the white population saw the history of colonialism in their area. Uh, within the past, and we need to move on and be all equal now, <laughs> which is kind of interesting when you consider the, uh, the inequities, the injustices, the inequalities uh, facing uh, many Indigenous communities. Uh, in Canada and the United States, uh, things like the, the lack of clean running water in many First Nation communities, the housing conditions, employment rates, and so forth. Um, and, and yet you have uh, this perception among many uh, white settlers that Indigenous people are somehow advantaged in getting uh, all these things for free and getting a free ride. Well over 90% of Indigenous people had, experience, had multiple experiences with discrimination that they, um, that they talked about that were verifiable, that were like vivid examples of um, discrimination they had faced at school, uh, being followed by people in stores, 
uh, being racially profiled by police, um, having um, stereotypes and assumptions uh, leveled at them at the, at the hospital. I mean, I've heard over well over 200 stories. With so many Indigenous responses, I was curious if the white residents were as willing to talk with Professor Dennis. Uh, among the white people, a few people reported that um, they, they were quite wary of speaking with me, and so they were actually less likely to agree to formal interviews. I uh, had one uh, person uh, respond when I, when I told them that I'm, I'm talking about relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. I know laissez-faire means to not interfere, to be aloof. I asked Professor Dennis if that definition applies to the title of his book. Laissez-faire racism is a term uh, that comes from uh, Lawrence Bobo, who's an African-American sociologist who talks about that in, in the context of uh, black-white relations in, in the States. Uh, and it's basically this, this attitude of, uh, of, of, of let things uh, be that um, uh, it, it includes uh, blaming uh, Indigenous people for uh, whatever social problems uh, that they face, whether it's higher poverty rates, other uh, social issues. One of, the, uh, one of the ways in which um, racism and inequality continue uh, is because people don't talk about it and don't address the, the issues um, head on. If you, if you never address it, then the status quo keeps getting uh, reproduced. So racism was a dirty word and something to be avoided. We don't talk about it. colonialism, treaties, residential schools. These are all taboo subjects. And as long as we don't talk about them, then people get along fine. Dennis says he's seen comparable situations in border towns across the continent. He says the conditions that have been created in these areas are similar to what he's studied. Professor Jeffrey Dennis's book, Canada at a Crossroads, Boundaries, Bridges, and Laissez-Faire Racism in Indigenous Settler Relations, is out now. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Taylor Stagner. When we return, I will have a conversation with UW President Ed Seidel, and we will have a story on how community colleges plan to reopen. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. When University of Wyoming President Ed Seidel was hired this spring, he had lots of ideas. Then COVID-19 hit and his priorities shifted. But despite budget cuts, he is still excited about the future of UW and how it will impact the state. One of the things that I talked about when I, when I came to interview was the experience base I had in economic development. So for the last four years before coming here, I was the vice president for economic development at the U of I in uh, Champaign. But thinking of how the university can kind of sharpen its tools to bring back more value to the state as a land-grant university. 
And so what we did there was we formed partnerships with all of the state universities, 12 of them across the state, and a, a number of communities, in addition to the city of Chicago and the private universities like University of Chicago and Northwestern, laboratories like Argonne National Lab, and we tried to figure out how we could most effectively try to stem the, the brain drain out of the state of Illinois. We have enormous talent. It goes all over the world. We want people to stay in the state of Illinois. So likewise, in the state of uh, Wyoming, uh, I think the idea would be to try to partner with universities, uh, that is the University of Wyoming, to play a leadership role working with the community colleges and communities across the state to see if we can align our offerings in a way that makes the most compelling value proposition for students. Ed Seidel visiting with us today. So want to ask you just a little bit about budget cuts. How do you get your goals done with less money? I have directed a, a committee to advise me on the best uh, ways forward in, ter in terms of addressing budget cuts that we have to make. But at the same time, uh, at every budget cut level that we might have to look at, we're also, they are also, the committee is also being asked to propose budget enhancements for certain kinds of programs that we think will be important for the future of the university and the state. And I laid out four specific areas that I think are very important so that I would like the university to become more digital. And that means in a number of different ways. For example, more online availability to be able to reach rural areas of the state. Also, more training in areas in computing and its applications or artificial intelligence or uh, data science. And not just in computer science or electrical engineering, but across the entire university because every market is driven now by advances in technology. The second one is I want the university to become more entrepreneurial. And I mean this in a couple of different ways as well. One is faculty should be able to be really out there trying to get grants and, and other sources of income. We have to diversify our sources of income just beyond what the state provides. So federal sources, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, philanthropic sources, corporate sources for support, and so on. So, but at the same time, I want students to be trained in entrepreneurship. And this, again, isn't just for business majors, although it is for business majors, but it's also for the English majors or the physicists or the astronomers or the, the engineers and so on. And so if we take this training, then we can think about having the ability to create new businesses for the, uh, for the state, and not just in Laramie, but across the whole state. The third area is becoming more interdisciplinary. And I think the university is actually already very good in a number of the areas I'm talking about, but even more so. So around interdisciplinarity, that means we have problems in the state that are really hard. And the university has expertise in virtually every aspect of what's needed to address, for example, diversifying the economy, for one example, or making certain markets more efficient to energy, for example. And that might require people uh, with expertise in the humanities, the arts and sciences, engineering, and so on. So interdisciplinarity, that means bringing all of these together, taking all of our expertise to, to make sure that we address problems that Wyoming has. And then the fourth area, is making sure that the university is more inclusive. And that means for every faculty member, for every student, for every staff member, and for people from every community in the state, from all walks of life, all income brackets, uh, diversity in, uh, in ethnic, uh, uh, racial, gender, every, every way, to make sure that everyone can participate in this and particularly to participate in the regrowth of the economy of the state. Okay, the fun topic, how you open this university up and, and keep it open for the next semester or for the entire year. 
You've asked for a fluid plan. I've already seen some adjustments in the plan. Maybe you can give folks up to date today uh, where, where things sit and when you plan to open and, and how we're going to keep everybody safe. So we, one thing I will promise you is we will be nimble as new data become available and we, we will be science driven. What is the best way to keep the students, faculty and staff of the university safe? That is the top priority in all of this. So just to say if those are our principles, we will be driven by in decisions by that. Um, we have taken uh, in, into our plans uh, the uh, first step is to uh, have everyone tested before they come back to campus. Uh, if they're negative, uh, then that is negative for coronavirus, then they'll be able to, to come back. If anyone shows positive, then they'll be put into uh, quarantine, they'll be isolated, and, uh, and so on. But then, we are now working very hard to develop our own testing program. Because testing once is, is useful only at that time. A little bit later, you can't be sure. And there have been a lot of epidemiological studies that are showing that if you can test your entire population, not only once, but perhaps twice per week, you'll be much more effective at being able to make decisions about uh, what's happening, to be aware. You have enough data to make decisions. And we have plans that we're still developing that will say, if we have so many positive or if we have so many symptomatic students or staff members, then um, we will go into a five-day pause. And so the, 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 we, these are not completely finished yet. We're working on this, but the, the concept is, that if we get into certain situations that are triggered by data we have on the population, we'll be able to make effective uh, choices on what to do. What would, would cause you to go totally online? Well, if it just got to a point where it was clearly um, endangering, endangering the lives of, of, of uh, the students and, and faculty or the community, uh, then we would, we would have to do that. That is, if, if the, if the uh, I should be more clear, if people together on the campus were creating a situation where too many people were getting sick, there could be uh, deaths, you know, and if we, if we had a death, we would certainly uh, go into a pause, I'm sure. If we uh, had um, uh, too many cases that we felt the density was too high, that the risk of spread was too high, then we would take a pause. And if it didn't improve, then we would have to go completely online, as, as we did last year. How do you keep our students from being normal college students and, and not passing this around? Well, college students will be college students. Uh, at the same time, we're asking everyone to be a responsible college student, and we're going to have uh, uh, people monitoring. If people are not wearing masks, they will be asked to wear masks. If people refuse to wear masks, it will be dealt with in the way any other disciplinary action would be taken on campus, not only for students, but for the faculty and staff as well. President Ed Seidel, a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wyoming's community colleges are also working out plans to reopen this fall. Wyoming Public Radio's Jeff Victor reports they face a lack of federal guidance and other issues that could undermine those plans. Wyoming has seven community colleges, and each one is preparing for the fall in its own way. For instance, Laramie County Community College is planning to offer most of its courses online, but Eastern Wyoming College is going full steam ahead with in-person classes, and students living on campus at Northwest College will be in single rooms whereas Casper College students don't need to be, 
LCCC President Joe Schaefer says each college's plan is determined by its local elected board of trustees. As you start to look at plans, so I, I believe Northwest has released theirs, um, Central Wyoming College has released theirs, you will see a lot of similarity, although certain choices about programming, density, um, even some protocols may be unique to that institution's you know, own environment. But Schaefer says his and other colleges are working with the Wyoming Community College Commission and the governor's office to coordinate on some decisions. Dr. Mark Dow, an infectious disease specialist in Casper, is optimistic about his local college's plan for the fall. I think learning in person is better. I think most of us would agree you get more out of it. But I think the key is, do you follow the protocols that you have set up absolutely and not get lazy and let things get by? At Casper College, students, faculty, and staff will be wearing masks, and classrooms will be disinfected during the 10-minute break between classes. That is adhered to, and people are sitting at least six feet away in the classroom. I can see that as a potential win, as long as everything that is promised is adhered to. Dow says colleges will need to educate those on campus about best practices and that college leadership must be willing to make the tough call to close campus if an outbreak occurs. People will be people, but at least in the setting that you can control, you can say, if you're not willing to do this, then you'll have to learn online. You're endangering your fellow students. Many of the community colleges plan to go completely, or primarily, online after the Thanksgiving break. And all of them plan to monitor the pandemic's development and adjust to changing circumstances. So what should colleges be doing? Three or four things would help reduce transmission that would happen in the classroom. That's University of Wyoming Associate Professor and Researcher Christine Porter. 100% people need to wear masks. That's number one. She says social distancing in the classroom is also necessary, and upgrades to HVAC systems so that air is pulled up and out of the room rather than allowed to circulate could also keep the virus from spreading. But Porter says it's probably too late to install such upgrades before the semester. A residence hall with normal, full occupancy might sound like a super-spreader event in the making. But Porter says it doesn't have to be. Students who would like to live with somebody else and they want to make each other in their bubble, it's just like living with your family, right? So I certainly would not require students to live with somebody else, but I think they should have the option because you're talking about one other person. Porter says the real challenge comes outside the classroom and maybe off campus. struggle is going to be that on average, people in the age group of the average college student generally are making decisions based on a feeling of invincibility, possibly being under the influence, and prioritizing, understandably, you know, the social, fun, engagement part of being in college. Young people in defiance of public health orders is a thing that worries everyone. That's because it's happened across the country, including here in Wyoming. Parties in Uinta and Natrona County have helped to spread the virus, and four Laramie women suspected of having the virus were charged in May for ignoring a quarantine order. Porter says she is worried colleges and other institutions will put a lot of time and money into reopening, and then have to shut down anyway in the wake of an outbreak. Even if 80% of the students do the right thing or 90% of the students do the right thing, it would only take you know a small group, which is to lead to super spreading events, and that seems very likely based on everything we know and have seen so far. Neither the Wyoming Department of Health nor the Centers for Disease Control have issued any guidelines for reopening colleges this fall. Porter says this lack of national leadership 
is putting colleges in an unfair and ridiculous position. Each community college in Wyoming, each community college in the country, every higher education institution in the country should not be having to figure this out on their own. A pandemic is time for national planning and support and guidance, and we are not getting it. As the fall semester grows closer, Wyoming community colleges are hopeful, but they realize they may be looking ahead to a year of decreased enrollment and radically transformed campus life. But LCCC President Joe Schaefer says it's still a good time to enroll in college. We're open for business. We'll have opportunities for everybody, and we really want to encourage um, folks not to, to lose traction or lose ground and continue to stay engaged in higher education. For Wyoming Public Radio, this is Jeff Victor. Changing gears, limitations on in-person gatherings because of the pandemic has led to theaters closing, or at least rethinking how the show can go on. For the time being, some theaters have moved productions from the stage to the internet. That's the case for Laramie-based Relative Theatrics. The transition has led the company to hire a director of virtual events. Noelia Burkus spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer about her new role and how theater can adapt to a challenging time. What theater company is hiring during this pandemic? (laughs) Yes. Back in April, Relative Theatrics did a series of free weekly Zoom readings, and they got extremely positive feedback that there was a desire for more virtual programming, both during the pandemic and post-pandemic. This feedback back in April and May was also paired with a lot of large donations, which were ultimately the foundation for securing my position. It's interesting to me that the audience is clamoring for more virtual programming even beyond the pandemic. I mean, we've all heard about or experienced things like Zoom fatigue. Um, why Why is that not factoring in? My sense is that with each virtual piece, we have a space afterwards to discuss what the audience has just seen with the creative team, but also with community members. And I think that that virtual community gathering space is really lovely at this time. And I think people are responding well to that. What kind of attendance are you seeing relative to pre-pandemic in-person performances? Back in April and May, we were receiving extremely high viewership. We were having hundreds and hundreds of people watch. During the summer, we've definitely had a dip in viewership, but that was absolutely to be expected. What about the geographic distribution of the audience? If you're doing things online, one can watch from anywhere. Yes. So it's been very exciting. Actually, in a reading a couple of weeks ago, we had somebody tuning in from Bulgaria, which was very cool. And we've had some people watching from the UK. So we're expanding our viewership. Right now, we have two virtual events that are happening that will continue to happen through the fall, at least through the end of the year. One is a Greek tragedy reading that's partnered with Out of Chaos Theater Company in the UK, the Center for Hellenic Studies at Harvard, and the Cosmos Society. And that happens the fourth Thursday of every month. And then the second Thursday of every month, we do a sort of drunk Shakespeare reading, which is very fun. Also, we will be doing a hybrid ticketed live season when we're moving into the formal season. So patrons will purchase tickets to a filmed production with a more theater feel rather than a Zoom production. Now, I don't mean to be snide, but um, isn't theater on camera a movie? (laughs) It's a great question. We're sort of in this, it's, it's sort of its own new art form. It's not theater in the true sense, right? But I would also argue it's not 
film because it's not filmed that way with cutting and different shots. It's sort of its own medium that we're all trying to figure out together. Our goal moving forward is to make it as much of a theater space as possible with the ticketing events and with some new technology that's not just Zoom. We'll do some kind of creative camera blocking and that kind of stuff. As an actor and a director yourself, what does it feel like to do and to watch virtual theater? Doing theater on camera always feels a little weird because you're kind of trying to squish this giant art form meant to be played to a large audience into this one little box. You're not in the same room, so the audience is not going to give you that energy. You're not going to be getting laughs. You're not going to be getting oohs and ahs and reactions. And so it's bringing that energy and summoning that energy within yourself because if you can make it happen within yourself, it absolutely translates. It's different, but it's, I think it absolutely can be done well. I'm talking with Noelia Burkus. She's the director of virtual programming at Relative Theatrics based in Laramie, although you're actually based in New York, um, where you also have a theater career. What is the landscape like there? They're really saying that theater, as we know, it is not going to come back until next year. Broadway is shut down at least through the end of the year. And I think what we're reading and what we're hearing here is that it's going to be up to these little theaters to sort of pave the way for how we do this, which is opposite of how it normally is. Um, But that's why it's even more exciting for me to sort of be working on both ends of this, you know, seeing it from New York uh, in a performer perspective, but then also to be working at Relative Theatrics and seeing how small theaters can be pioneers of this. The big regional theaters are definitely watching and then Broadway will be watching the big regional theaters and they'll be trickling up, so to speak. Let me ask about the financial side of things. I mean, ticket sales are the core of the the money-making operation for theater. How do you translate that into a virtual space? So when this all started, we did sort of the public radio model of pay what you think is worth. And now during the summer, we have transitioned to a $10 suggested donation for each event, which goes towards general funds and paying the artists for their work. But looking forward, the nice thing is that These virtual spaces are no longer novel. They're now a tangible good. It's an established product. People know what to expect, which also means that organizations and funding agencies now understand it and can get behind financing it. For all of the pitfalls of this pandemic, I'm left with sort of a hopeful feeling about it all when I see just how accessible it has become, the partnerships that have been created, the relationships that have been created. Noelia Burkus is the new director of virtual programming at Relative Theatrics in Laramie. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. When we come back, we will wrap up the program with a new plan to keep coal miners safe. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. The watchdog office within the Department of Labor has released a report recommending changes to the agency in charge of keeping mines safe. The U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, has been under pressure from unions and some federal lawmakers to create temporary emergency standards in response to COVID-19. Wyoming Public Radio's Cooper McKim speaks with coal reporter 
Taylor Kirkendall with S&P Global Market Intelligence. They begin by discussing what actions M. Shaw has taken so far. What we've seen from them is essentially a website that has a bunch of tips from the CDC for general workplaces um, and, and other government sources that they've compiled together and, and made it sort of mind specific. It's a couple hundred words with some links to other websites. And since they rolled that out, they've put out a couple flyers that, that basically tell you to wash your hands, cover coughs, things that are kind of basic. And we've not seen much more public from them on, on what they're doing other than that. Now, we do know that they've taken some some additional steps. They've tried to keep some inspectors away from, from mines that might be highly infected. And the report kind of revealed that they've they've done some some other things that, that, that kind of like are more informative or, or, or set aside regular training to, to put that off until later because just to try to comply with social distancing guidelines. But yeah, that's what we're kind of seeing. The difference here is, I think, and if you read the the work from the United Mine Workers of, of America, is basically they say that, that the, the agency could do so much more. They could ensure that, you know, if there's a, um, a personal protective gear standard um, that is a minimum and met everywhere across, you know, all mines, and, and it's just a little bit more enforceable than what they have right now, because the problem that they have is they've essentially given some best practices and tips, but not really anything that's explicitly enforceable. You can't go out and, you know, find these these mines without, you know, some ambiguity about how it's going to turn out. Right. There was very little known about what MSHA was doing behind the scenes. And this report came out from my perspective, it seemed like a lot of people were surprised. And then it, it seemed like uh, it was somewhat revealing as, as far as what MSHA was actually uh, doing and what some of its considerations have been in the past few months. It was kind of a surprise. I, I wasn't aware that the inspector general was was looking into this issue. We, we, we've known that there wasn't an emergency temporary standard and the people that work in the mines, at least the unionized people that work in those mines, were, were asking for those additional protections. The report certainly um, offers a whole lot more more detail and does, I think, help confirm that that they really haven't gone too far beyond asking for these, you know, kind of like, again, unenforceable um, pieces of guidance that, um, again, want to say that there's, some of these larger companies are, are put, doing a lot to, to, to try to protect their miners. And, and, and some miners might even listen to this and think, hey, I'm doing all these extra things at the mine. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. We, we're being very careful. The problem is, and what the UMWA has asked for and what I think this report highlights is that those kind of protections aren't guaranteed at every mine. And, and if you look at, you know, mining sectors past, I mean, you can find all kinds of examples of where people have cut corners. And I think one of the the fears might be that, you know, especially with the additional pressures that have been put on by the, the worsened economy, that there might be some temptation to do that. Again, that doesn't guarantee that mine operators are doing that, but, you know, there's a very real concern. And I think that it's caused a lot of frustration for people um, at the UMWA, but you also saw this from lawmakers that, you know, MSHA is not stepping up and doing something more than kind of what they're required to do. Any other takeaways in your eyes um, or, or anything that surprised you from the report? Um, yeah. So I think one of the things that's kind of left unclear to me um, at the top of the report, there's um, the OIG gives their recommendations. They recommend that MSHA monitors this backlog of, of enforcement and inspection activities that's just bound to pile up because, you know, they, they're they're adjusting to COVID. Um, everybody everywhere that's working understands that some things aren't getting done now that usually would be. And they, they talk about 
watching that and figuring out how to solve it once this is all over. Um, the second one I thought was interesting because they said that they should be monitoring COVID-19 outbreaks at mines and using that information to reevaluate their decision to not issue that emergency temporary standard. Then they said that MSHA agrees with both recommendations. I think if you you read through the the letter from, from MSHA chief at the end, it's not quite clear that they um, give a full a full-hearted agreement with that that right it doesn't sound like they're not agreeing in such a way that means that they're going to go out and write an emergency temporary standard but it does seem like they're open to the idea and um i think it's going to be very very interesting to watch to see how this all plays out there's obviously a lot of pressure on them now to do this and i think one thing we'd be remiss not to mention is that you know we're months and months into into this pandemic um a lot of the um, exposure that could have been prevented or that a lot of the good that a temporary emergency standard might be able to do um, has kind of passed us. Um, obviously, that, that doesn't mean that it's not going to do good going forward. But I think it has been kind of surprising to me how slow this process has moved. Usually something with a title like temporary emergency standard isn't the kind of thing you would would hope to take you know weeks or even months to form. That was Taylor Kirkendall, senior reporter with S&P Global Market Intelligence. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Open Spaces. This show and individual segments will be archived on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You might find it easier to catch the entire program, though, by getting our podcast through that website or the usual locations. Individual segments will also be shared on Facebook and on Twitter. Anna Rader is our web editor. Thanks to those of you who support this award-winning program with your financial support, and you can get in on the fun by making your own donation at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.